the worst thing can happen to an impeached president is they're removed from office and they go back to doing what they did in private life. This is his private life. This is what he had to go back to. And now his private business, 10 years of financial statements have been pulled by the accountants. And the accountants are basically saying you cannot rely on them. That sounds bad. Coming from Kellyanne Conway's husband, after all. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. You know it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I am. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. Also in California, in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon, on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, on WLRI, Maui, Maui Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. In Palinville, New York, on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans, on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico, on KNIZ. Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle, on KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day. On the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Verdant Square Radio, Detour Talk, and all your favorite podcast sites except for Spotify, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow. Says me. From bradblog.com, thank you very much for joining us today. We've got lots of uh, cleanup on aisle 45 news coming today. (laughs) It has been a while. It's been a while. True. Uh, You know, this morning I had a a, a feeling sort of, an eerie feeling sort of sweep over me that I would be spending the rest of my days reporting on the crimes of Donald Trump and the endless efforts to see accountability for any of them. Well, there are many, many crimes. There are. It's going to take a while, as we have long been warning. But first... We need uh, a bigger boat. Yeah. uh, A bit of news that may or may not be getting the coverage that it warrants today. I'm guessing not getting the coverage that it warrants, but the death toll from devastating mudslides and floods... That swept through a mountainous region of Rio de Janeiro state has reached 58 as of this hour, according to local authorities on Wednesday. The area received just over, get this, 10 inches of rain within three hours on Tuesday. That's a month's worth of rain for that area. In three hours. In three hours. Video posted on social media on Tuesday showed cars and houses being dragged away by landslides, water swirling through Petropolis, uh, a city in uh, Rio. In the hills above Rio. Correct. Uh, And uh, the uh, Globo television network on Wednesday showed houses buried beneath mud in areas firefighters had 
yet been able to access. Several streets remained inaccessible as cars and household goods piled up, blocking access to higher parts of the city. Uh, one bar owner, Emerson Tor, uh, Torre, 39 years old, recalled the neighbors came down running and I gave them shelter, but under torrents of water, his roof collapsed in the bar. He managed to get his mother and three other people out of it in time, but one neighbor and the person's daughter were unable to escape. Every neighbor has lost a loved one, has lost two, three, four members of the same family. Torre told AP the city of Petropolis was slammed by the deluge on Tuesday and the mayor there uh, said the number of dead could rise as searchers pick through the wreckage. Twenty one people had been recovered alive. Civilians joined the uh, recovery effort on Wednesday. Among them were Priscilla Nevis and her siblings who looked through the mud for any sign of their disappeared parents but they found only clothing. She told the Associated Press she had given up hope of finding her parents alive. Rosalind Virgilio, 49 years old, was in tears as she recalled the desperate pleas from someone she could not save. She said there was a woman screaming, help, get me out of here, but we couldn't do anything. The water was gushing out. The mud was gushing out. Uh, yes, nestled in the mountains above the coastal metropolis for almost two centuries, Petropolis has been a refuge for people escaping summer heat and for tourists. Governor Claudio Castro told reporters on Wednesday that the situation was, quote, almost like war and that he was mustering all the state government's heavy machinery to help dig out the buried area. Brazil's president, meanwhile, Jair Bolsonaro expressed solidarity while on a trip to Russia. Bolsonaro has uh, accelerated deforestation in the Amazon in Brazil, allowing more uh, deforestation that has severely cut back on the Amazon's ability, the rainforest there, to be the lungs of the planet, serving as a carbon sink to allow carbon Pollution in the bargain to get worse, worse and worse. The world, the world uh, to warm, warm further, leading to more disasters like the one devastating his own country of Brazil in the state of Rio today. Yeah, it's quite sad that uh, Bolsonaro is trading off, selling off Brazil's greatest feature, the thing that that helps the world uh, by sequestering carbon emissions from around the planet. That's the Amazon rainforest. And by deforestation, that also increases emissions because land use changes increase carbon emissions as well. So it's it is sadly those chickens coming home to roost for those people who did not ask for that. Any of this. No, they didn't. And it's not the uh, first time this year we've had something like that in Brazil. Southeastern Brazil has been punished with heavy rains since the beginning of the year with more than 40 deaths recorded in several states during the month of January. So that mess continues. That predictable mess continues. Uh, and one more story that likely will not get the coverage by the corporate media today that I think it seems to deserve as they just really don't seem to like to report on the economic boom under Joe Biden for reasons that I will let you determine. Uh, consumer spending bounced back sharply in January. The Commerce Department said on Wednesday retail sales for the month rose 3.8 percent, which is much better than the 2.1 percent Dow Jones had estimated. Well, no wonder they don't want to talk about it. Sounds terrible. Impeach Joe Biden. 
Online shopping contributed the most on a percentage basis, with online retailers seeing a gain of 14.5%. 14.5%. Furniture and home furnishing sales increased more than 7%. Motor vehicles and parts uh, saw a almost 6% rise. Sounds terrible. What a disaster. Uh, food and drinking establishments, however, they saw a sales dip. See, told you Joe Biden is destroying the economy. What was that dip? Well, 0.9% for the month. That, despite the major escalation in COVID cases fueled by the spread of Omicron. PNC's chief economist, uh, Gus Foucher, wrote, uh, Retail sales in recent months have been increasing much faster than prices. So households are purchasing larger volumes of goods and services. They are not just paying higher prices for some who have said, well, of course, every you know retail sales went up. That's thanks to inflation. Well, no, apparently they are spending uh, more than the uh, increase in prices. So, yeah, inflation is just terrible, but Americans are spending much more on stuff anyway. Maybe the charges that inflation is killing the economy were off target. I don't know. Well, and also CEOs, several CEO, CEOs have been publicly bragging on earnings calls that they have been raising prices because they can get away with it and consumers are willing to pay for them. And they've been making record profits. Another report on Wednesday also showed that industrial production jumped one, almost one and a half percent in January, much higher than the half percent that had been forecast. Yeah, three times higher, in fact, but no biggie. You can bury that at the end of your report, CNBC. Man. All right. Well, (laughs) doing the best we can to get out what needs to get out, what needs to be heard, what needs to be understood. Um And now back to the seemingly never-ending rabbit hole of endless corruption that is the former president and his administration and the ongoing fight for accountability in its wake, along with uh, just another reminder that, uh, who you know, he, as he told us over and over again, hires only the best people. Here's (laughs) one of the best people that he hired. Government investigators say Ryan Zinke, the sleazy former U.S. Interior Secretary under Donald Trump misused his position to advance a personal development project in his Montana home, and he lied to agency ethics officials about his involvement. The Interior Department's Inspector General said in a report made public on Wednesday that Zinke continued working with a foundation on the commercial project in the community of Whitefish, Montana, even after he had committed upon taking office to break all ties with that foundation. The IG said Zinke, quote, failed to abide by his ethics obligations and, quote, misused his public office for private gain. Zinke had supposedly resigned from his role with that foundation, and he pledged back in May of 2017 not to participate, quote, personally and substantially in any matter that involved that foundation for a year. But the report said Zinke played a, quote, extensive direct and substantive role in representing the foundation in its negotiations pertaining to a commercial development project uh, called the 95 Caro Project. It cited 64 emails and text messages from August of 2017 to July of 2018 in which Zinke, quote, communicated directly with the developers. 
It also alleged that he held at least one in-person meeting in his office uh, in August of 2017, after which he gave the developers a personal tour of the Lincoln Memorial. He had dinner with them afterwards. Other than that, he totally did not participate personally and substantially with the group in any way. The report also says Zinke gave incorrect and incomplete information to an Interior Department ethics official who confronted him over his involvement. In other words, he lied to the official and that Zinke had directed his staff, again, as secretary of the U.S. Department of Interior. He directed his staff to assist uh, him with the project in a misuse of his position, having them arrange, for example, that office and dinner meeting and with the foundation that he was supposed to have nothing to do with. The Great Northern Veterans Peak Park, uh, Peace Park Foundation was established by Zinke and others in tw- uh, 2007. He and his wife were in negotiations with private developers for the use of foundation land for a commercial development project. Yes, Zinke had hoped to actually build a brew pub that he would own and run at the edge of his Veterans Peace Park. His nonprofit, supposedly. Right. And so during their trip uh, to D.C., the developers gave Zinke a plan for the parking lot. That was a significant point of negotiations because if the parking lot for the park was in a place that it could be used for his brew pub, we're all good. Zinke stepped down from his role as Interior Secretary in the Trump administration in December 2018 after a series of scandals in which he was accused of using his position for personal gain. The investigation into the land deal was just one of several. Now, under Zinke's leadership, the Interior Department sought to advance oil and gas drilling and mining on or near public lands. They rolled back protections for threatened species. They uh, shrank national monuments. And those were not even the scandals. That was just what he did in his uh, supposed uh, job of protecting the interior. Uh, when he finally stepped down, um, Gio, senior fossil fuels program manager for Friends of the Earth, had said Zinke's days of plundering our lands and enriching himself and his friends are over. Well, his days of plundering and enriching himself on the public dime may in fact not be over. Zinke, because he has never faced any accountability for any of this, is now a candidate in Montana's June Republican primary for an open congressional seat in the state. That's the position that he held uh, before joining Trump's cabinet. He might go right back to it. Again, what comes of never bringing accountability for wrongdoing? Keep that in mind as we move forward today. Uh, Investigators, in fact, referred this matter to the Department of Justice under Joe Biden for potential prosecution, but... They declined to pursue a criminal case for some reason, according to the report. Now, is that because uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland declines to pursue any criminal cases against the previous administration in his hopes of uh, appearing, you know, trying to depoliticize the Justice Department after Donald Trump? Maybe. I don't know. But if so... That sure does a hell of a lot of favors for criminals and a great disservice to the cause of justice, at least in my opinion. Let's take a quick break here. We'll come back to talk with my guest today, a former federal prosecutor, 
and get his thoughts on, uh, well, on exactly that, along with the latest accountability news for our disgraced former president. There has been quite a bit of it this week in New York that we haven't had much time to discuss. We will be joined by a uh, former assistant U.S. attorney who specializes in white-collar crime to discuss that and his thoughts on what Merrick Garland is or isn't or should be doing as the statute of limitations runs out on at least a few of Trump's many apparent federal crimes committed while serving in the White House. George Washington University School of Law's Randall Eliason joins us next on the broadcast with that. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Desi. The broadcast and the Green News Report survive thanks to you and your support. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us stay independent every day over your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Don't come around here no more. Don't come around here no more. Message from Mazars USA to the Trump Organization. Welcome back to the broadcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Yes, earlier this week we learned that Donald J. Trump's longtime accounting firm, Mazars USA, abruptly cut ties. With Trump's family business uh, last week amid ongoing criminal and civil investigations into whether Trump illegally inflated the value of his assets as court documents filed this week revealed. In a letter to the Trump Organization on February 9, the accounting firm notified the company of its decision to leave them, to dump them, and disclose that it could no longer stand behind annual financial statements it prepared for nearly a decade for Trump and the organization. The letter instructed the Trump Organization to essentially retract the documents, known as Statements of Financial Condition, from 2011 to 2020 and directed the Trump Organization to notify anyone who received the statements that they should no longer rely on them. In other words, Mazars is disavowing them entirely. The statements, which Trump used to secure loans, are at the center of the two law enforcement investigations in the state into the former president and his company, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office and the Office of the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, have been investigating whether Trump used the statements to defraud his lenders into providing him the best possible loan terms. The revelations appeared in the new court documents filed by James's office, which is uh, in a court battle essentially seeking to question Trump and two of his adult children uh, under oath as part of her investigation. That would be Ivanka and Don Jr. She has already uh, questioned Eric uh, a year or so ago. Trump uh, Trump lawyers had asked a judge to prohibit the questioning, and in response, James's office argued in court papers last month that the company had engaged in, quote, fraudulent or misleading practices. Her filing on Monday this week, which marked her latest attempt to press ahead with questioning Trump, as well as Don Jr. and Ivanka, included that copy of that Mazar's letter signed by the accounting firm's general counsel. 
They said they concluded that the statements which they produced based on information supplied to them by the Trump organization were no longer reliable. Based in part on the attorney general's earlier filings, its own investigations and information the accountants received from, quote, internal and external sources. In a filing last month, for example, the state AG highlighted uh, misleading statements about the value of at least six Trump properties, including Trump's own penthouse home in Trump Tower. The filing uh, claimed that the uh, the the, uh, triplex apartment in Trump Tower spanned 30,000 square feet at an eye popping value of three hundred and twenty seven million dollars. In truth, the apartment was about 11,000 square feet. Trump's long-serving chief financial officer, Alan Weisselberg, later acknowledged to investigators that the company had overvalued the apartment by, quote, give or take $200 million. So uh, what does Mazar's disowning, disavowing of 10 years of Trump financial statements mean in light of their letter stating they can no longer work with the company because it presents a, quote, conflict of interest for them? Really? A conflict of interest? Why? David K. Johnston, the reporter who obtained and reported in 2017 on Trump's 2005 tax return and who has been reporting on Trump for years, well before he became president, has a theory about all of this. He told CNN on Tuesday that Trump's now former longtime accounting firm, Mazars USA, is actually helping prosecutors compile racketeering charges against the former president, his three oldest children and the Trump Organization, as well as chief financial officer Alan Weisselberg. Mazars dumped the Trump Organization. What's the significance of that? Well, it's very important in Donald's case because he's facing questions about running a racketeering enterprise and running a fraudulent company is at the very center of that. So that his accountants have turned against him and disavowed these compilations they put together uh, where they said, well, here's what our client Donald said these things were worth. Here's how much money he said he had in the bank without checking it, which is what we expect accountants to do. Uh, indicates Donald is more and more being separated from people who can do him great harm by simply telling the truth. What happens if Mazars cooperates with investigators, which by all accounts, it does seem that they are? Well, Donald Bender, the Mazars accountant who prepares Trump's tax returns, testified before the Manhattan grand jury. And New York has this very unusual law if you testify before the grand jury, you are granted immunity. That's not true at the federal level and in other states. So he no longer is in, uh, in concern personally for anything he may have done from the Manhattan prosecutors. But it does mean that Mazars is helping the prosecutors put together the what I expect will be a racketeering case, a New York State racketeering case against Trump, the Trump Organization, uh, uh, Alan Weiselberg, and probably Donald's three oldest children. Wow. 
David K. Johnston says they are all going to be prosecuted for racketeering in New York. That's a major crime, of course. At least I think it is. We will get an explanation momentarily from my guest who has years of experience as a white-collar criminal prosecutor and find out if he assesses the situation here similarly. But on a separate, if sort of related matter, that guest, former Assistant U.S. Attorney Randall Lyason, also has some thoughts on prosecution of Trump at the federal level, specifically the question of whether it will happen at all or not, at least on the matter of obstruction of justice by then-President Donald Trump, as detailed in some 10 different instances by special counsel Robert Mueller. It's time for the Biden Justice Department to issue a report on the Mueller report, Eliasson wrote recently in an opinion piece for The Washington Post, he says there are multiple criminal investigations currently swirling around former President Trump. The Justice Department is investigating the January 6th riot in Washington and attempts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Attempts to steal it, I'm sure Eliason means, with uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland vowing to pursue those criminally responsible, quote, at any level. Meanwhile, prosecutors in Georgia are investigating Trump's alleged efforts to interfere with the election results in that state. New York prosecutors, he says, are investigating Trump and his businesses for potential fraud. But three years ago, nearly three years ago, special counsel Robert Mueller presented an exhaustive report detailing almost a dozen instances of possible obstruction of justice by Trump in connection with the investigation of Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. The five-year statute of limitations on the first such instance, notes Eliasson, which would be Trump's alleged request to then-FBI Director James Comey to drop the criminal investigation of disgraced former National Security, Security Advisor Michael Flynn. That uh, statute of limitations actually expired this week on February 14. Happy Valentine's Day. Other acts of possible obstruction soon will be similarly time-barred, warns Eliasson. Can we now assume that Trump will never be held accountable, at least for those acts? I guess Garland still has nine more to choose from, as detailed in the Mueller report, but the statute of limitations will soon be told for those as well. Eliasson thinks Garland owes us if not an indictment, at least an explanation for what the hell is going on at the Department of Justice. That's my crass words, not his. Randall D. Eliasson is now a law professor at D.C.'s George Washington University Law School, a writer and commentator on corporate and white-collar criminal law, and a former assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, where he served as chief of the Public Corruption and Government Fraud Section. Oh, Mr. Eliasson, it's been a while, but welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thank you. Great to be back. Before we get to your piece focused on uh, on Garland and the obstruction of justice allegations from the Mueller report, I want to pick your brain a little bit, if I can, on the New York fraud, corruption, and if David K. Johnson is right here, racketeering uh, probes of Trump and his organization. I now, I know you were a federal prosecutor focused on for years on white-collar crime, not an expert in New York white-collar crime state laws. But generally speaking, what, what responsibility does an accounting firm have 
when representing a client. Uh, does Mazars or did they, uh, they're now disavowing about 10 years of work product, did they have any potential legal exposure there? Well, sure, potentially if they knew, if they were knowing they're participating in some kind of a fraud mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, that, that the Trump organization was engaged in, then the accounting firm could also be potentially liable. But it appears what's, so what's going on here is they're trying to distance themselves mm-hmm. from Trump and the organization, right? Um, the, I saw a saying I like the other day, this is the case, the, the ship is leaving the rats, right? The, uh, <laughs> um, they're trying to distance themselves, and that suggests they see something bad coming down the road for their client, uh-huh. and they're trying to get as far away from it as they possibly can and say, well, it wasn't our fault, you know, it wasn't our fault, whatever's going on here, uh, and, you know, th- well, they, w- they will take the position, of course, that they were misled as well, at least to some degree. So, so I mean, do, do yeah. uh, accountants such as it is, a firm like that, actually have some sort of responsibility to ensure that the information they produce on behalf of a client is actually accurate is that is it their duty to investigate to make sure they're they're reporting correctly like that well to a certain degree sure i mean there are you know the generally accepted accounting principles they have to do some due diligence to sort of verify the books and things that that are going on but at at some level they're allowed to rely on what their client tells them Mm. you know so if the client lies to them uh you know they're allowed to rely on that when preparing their own reports so they Mm -hmm. can be deceived as well and i'm sure that's the position they'll ultimately take. They're not a co-conspirator, right? They weren't willingly engaged in this, that they mm-hmm. were uh, deceived themselves. And I think the implication of what's happening here is what the other guest uh, that you were David uh, K. Johnston playing there? earlier, right? Yeah. I don't know about the particular charges he mentioned, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's racketeering or, or, you know, specific charges in mind, but I think the most likely explanation for what's going on is Mazars is now cooperating uh, either in the criminal case or the civil case, or both, and you know potentially testifying against Trump and the Trump organization, and that definitely creates a conflict of interest mm-hmm. where they'd say, "Well, I can't be your accountant anymore because now I'm actually testifying a witness against you." Yes, right. exactly. Yeah. And it, so that sure does sound like what's going on here. And uh, I mean, and I guess if if the case is is fraud, and essentially Donald Trump is is lying about his assets, their testimony that yes. That's what he told us. He lied to us, apparently, uh, would be uh, very damning cooperation. But what is what is racketeering, uh, Randall, as, as Johnson uh, seems to be indicating there? Because as I understand it, uh, down in Georgia as well, Fulton County, Georgia District Attorney Fonnie Willis, who's investigating Trump's conspiracy to try and defraud the election in Georgia, she has also hired a a former federal racketeering prosecutor on that case as well, as I understand it. What is the crime of racketeering? Well, so the the federal crime, at least, which is the one I'm most familiar with, Mm -hmm. RICO, the Racketeering Racketeer Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act, RICO, it's basically the charge of running a criminal enterprise. Mm -hmm. So it's it's operating an entity, a business, or some other entity through a pattern of racketeering activity, a, a series of criminal acts, and at least in the federal statute, that that can be a whole wide range of acts and includes a lot of things that we don't normally think of when you hear the word racketeering. Because the first thing that comes to mind is you think of organized crime and you know extortion, mm-hmm. violent crime, and, and a lot of stuff like that. But it also applies to a lot of white collar offenses like mail and wire fraud and tax fraud and mm-hmm. securities fraud. So it's basically I would characterize it as the, 
the charge of running a criminal organization. Um, and so the argument probably in these cases, the allegation would be that, you know, the Trump organization was being run as a criminal enterprise by these defendants, and that enterprise was engaged in things like tax fraud, insurance fraud, bank mm-hmm. fraud, things like that. So uh, I- if you add a, a charge of racketeering, in other words, if uh, there is an attempt by Trump to lie about his properties, that he defrauded the banks or, or the IRS, that would be a charge of fraud. But when you add racketeering on it, essentially it ups the entire uh, matter. It, it, it becomes a large conspiracy and, and can add to, well, the number of charges and, and, and the, the size of the penalty you may ultimately end up paying. Well, you know, to be honest, in the federal system, that's not necessarily true uh-huh. anymore, at least. Uh-huh. Um, often, and so I don't know what the New York State RICO law or racketeering laws are like, and uh-huh. so this may not be the same situation in New York State law. In federal cases, and nowadays, it doesn't add all that much most of the time because you can charge conspiracy to commit mail fraud, conspiracy to commit bank fraud. Those are also 20-year felonies, mm-hmm. as is RICO. So it used to be, more, it used to be a uh, sort of more significant factor 10, 15, 20 years ago when some of the penalties for these other crimes were not as high. Mm-hmm. But now they're all like 20-year felonies. And so often RICO, it has this kind of... Uh, sexy or menacing tone mm-hmm. to it, you know, it right. sounds really serious and sounds really bad. Yeah. In the end, for the from the prosecution's perspective, in a federal system anyway, it doesn't usually end up making that much difference in terms of the ultimate uh, sentencing mm-hmm. outcome, because there are so many other options now that you have that are almost equally serious. David K. Johnson went on to say that uh, he believes that, in fact, uh, Trump and the organization and the kids and everyone else uh, will be indicted in New York. And I think he said uh, similarly, uh, he believes he'll be indicted in Georgia. You want to ring in on that one way or another, whether you think there'll, there'll be an indictment here? I leave it to you whether you want to make that prediction or, or duck out of that one. I will, I will ring in to say that I don't make predictions when it comes to indictments, uh, and I'm not sure how anybody else can. Mm-hmm. Uh, not, not only predict that an indictment is coming, but predict what the exact charges will be. To me, you're kind of entering in the realm of speculation there. Uh, grand jury investigations are secret. We don't know what the outcome is going to be, and uh, I've learned through long and painful experience not to <laughs> claim that I do know. So <laughs> okay. I, I would just say it looks like a serious and significant development whether that'll be primarily in the civil case in New York or the criminal matter or both or other criminal matters, I think we just have to wait and see. And that's but, the, yeah, well, yeah. you know, that's the, sort of the last point that I want to ask you on this before we're getting, uh, before we get to your op-ed on the, on the federal matter. So, you know, Trump and his company are being uh, probed by both the state attorney general for civil bank tax and insurance fraud crimes. The Manhattan D.A. is investigating Trump and his company for the same thing, but under criminal state laws. Now, last time you were on the show, I think we discussed the difference between civil and criminal indictments. One ends up essentially with fines and so forth. The other could mean jail time. But how can both... I, I don't understand how the that 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 both prosecutors can be investigating essentially the same fraudulent acts, allegedly fraudulent acts, but one is doing yeah. so as a civil violation, one as a criminal. In the other case, they look like they're looking at the exact same potential crimes on the exact same properties, etc. How are these two separate investigations entirely? Yeah, and 
there can certainly be a lot of overlap. And the funny thing is, you know, it's not actually that unusual in the white-collar area. And there's, a, there's even a term for it. They call it parallel proceedings, where different agencies or different investigators are looking at basically the same facts, but for different reasons, and because they have different jurisdictions and different responsibilities and potentially different penalties. And so the same series of acts, for example, in mm-hmm. a securities fraud case, the SEC might look at them to impose civil penalties on the company or require its uh, this is a certain stockbroker to lose their license and things like that. Mm-hmm. And if it's a bad enough case, the Department of Justice might also look at it for criminal securities fraud charges. And here you've got something similar. So mm-hmm. the New York Attorney General is charged with civil enforcement here mm-hmm. of the tax and fraud laws, and she could impose penalties on the co- financial penalties on the company you know, and other sanctions, but she mm-hmm. can't prosecute people and put them in jail. That's the DA's responsibility. Mm. And for those same acts or related acts, if they're serious enough, then there can also be criminal penalties, and their jurisdiction is to enforce the criminal law, and they can potentially put people in jail. So this kind of overlap, like I said, especially in in white collar, Mm -hmm. is actually not that uncommon. Mm. Uh, You've just got people with different jurisdictions and different responsibilities. They're kind of looking at the same events, and they can cooperate with each other to some extent. when, when appropriate. And so we could see uh, in one week, Letitia James comes out and uh, announces uh, civil charges against Donald Trump, and then the very next week, the very next day, the Manhattan DA could come out and say, and now here are some criminal indictments for these same things. Yeah, potentially, sure. I mean, not okay. impossible. Not, of course, they've already indicted in the criminal case. Right. The only issue, are they going to add additional criminal charges right. is the only question, but mm-hmm. there's already a criminal indictment of Weisselberg and, and the corporation. The company yeah. itself, yeah. All right, yeah. now, in your recent Washington Post piece, Randall Eliason, you called on U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland to not let the clock run out on the 10 or more uh, different instances of obstruction of justice by Trump that Robert Mueller detailed in his special counsel report on uh, Russian interference in the 2016 election and Trump's firing of FBI Director James Comey, etc. Of course, Mueller famously said he could not indict a sitting president, but that impeachment or indictment after Trump was out of office would be uh, uh, allowable legally. Now, the earliest documented instance of obstruction has now passed its statute of limitations uh, uh, time for charges as of Monday. Does that should we read anything into that one way or another as far as what Garland might do on the other nine or 10 or 11? Well, so it prompted this column. So, I mean, I should preface this by saying there's a lot of people out on social media mm-hmm. Uh, for the last few months, you know, there's a lot of Merrick Garland bashing going on and mm-hmm. people claiming, you know, DOJ isn't doing anything, isn't doing enough about January 6th, and they're not going after the high-level organizers, and mm-hmm. why, aren't, why aren't there more indictments yet? I'm not one of those people. Mm-hmm. I'm not someone who's been jumping all over Garland and saying nothing is happening. I mm-hmm. think, and I've said repeatedly, you know, these cases take a lot of time, and there are a lot of signs they are actively pursuing the things related to January 6th. But what prompted this column was, was this whole different set of allegations mm-hmm. in the Mueller report, and the fact that, like you said, the, the you know that report came out three years ago now. Mm-hmm. Um, Attorney General Barr, of course, kind of famously said, "I don't see any criminal wrongdoing here," and closed the case. But Bob Mueller had said, and, and everybody agreed pretty much, uh, and he said during his testimony that once the president's out of office, whatever you think of this internal DOJ policy that we can't indict a sitting president, which mm-hmm. not everybody 
agrees is correct. But whatever you think of that, include me. Include me in that. Game, include right? me in that yeah. list, Randall. Right. All right, go ahead. <laughs> I think yes. we've had that discussion before too. Yes, right? yes. Go ahead. Um, but once he's out of office, that doesn't apply. So right now he's out of office. It's been a year, and obviously DOJ has been pretty busy with you know, prosecuting the insurrection and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I just wanted to write the column to say, hey, look, you know, as this clock is ticking away, I think given the size of this investigation, the seriousness of the investigation, the detail in that report, even though DOJ doesn't normally comment on cases that it's not going to bring or that it's not prosecuting, in this case, they should. They should tell us something about what's happened with that Mueller report now that we have an administration in office that is not, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. full of Trump appointees and it's not Bill Barr. Has anybody looked at this since they came in and decided have they made an affirmative decision not to pursue it? Uh, are they, in fact, going to pursue it? If they decided not to pursue it, why not? Did they decide just not to disturb the earlier decision of a prior attorney general, which there would be a lot of institutional and policy reasons you might not do that? But I just think, again, this is a very, very unusual, a unique case. You know, with this kind of report out there and this depth of investigation, and a lot of people really convinced that the evidence of obstruction was pretty overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And it's bad for the department and bad for the country, I think, if that just is allowed to fade into the distance and nobody ever says, hey, yeah, okay, we, we did take a look at this and here's what we decided. Now, I, I, uh, I am one of those who, of course, would love an explanation one way or another, whether they are still looking at it, whether they looked at it and you know decided to, to pass on it. But, uh, yeah, you even indicated uh, my understanding was that unless and until charges are brought in federal investigations, that federal prosecutors are not supposed to discuss them at all. Or even if there is an investigation, how is why is that? Why would this be different? Why should they violate their own um, guidelines here to, to make such a statement? Well, I don't think they would have to violate them. There is some leeway in there. They don't discuss any particulars, but, you know, for example, Garland gave that speech about January 6th, and he confirmed that there is an investigation ongoing mm-hmm. and that they're going to go as high as it leads. You know, I mean, you, you mm-hmm. can confirm that an investigation exists um, without going into particulars, and you can also confirm that uh, an investigation has been closed or that, you know, you've decided not to, not mm-hmm. to open an investigation. Um, so it's not like there's a flat prohibition on DOJ ever telling the public what it's up to. Uh-huh. Um, and I think, again, given this kind of uh, very unusual situation and the, the detail of the Mueller report and, you know, the country spent, you know, two years and, yeah. uh, you know, on this investigation, I mean, I think, we, I think the people deserve to know that somebody who wasn't Bill Barr mm-hmm. took a look at this thing and, and what they decided to do about it before it just becomes a fait accompli and say, well, now it's too late, even if we wanted to. Now, if they wanted to come out and say, um, yeah, we've decided to not investigate or we looked at it and we've, uh, you know, cleared the former president or there was, uh, you know, we there's, there's not enough here for us to bring charges. So there is no ongoing investigation. If that was... If that was the case, that would be appropriate in any circumstances, wouldn't it, for a prosecutor to come out and say, uh, yeah, we've looked at it and and such and such has been cleared of any uh, wrongdoing? Well, again, it's really fact-specific. It kind of depends on whether the public already knows a lot about the investigation or not. Uh For example, a lot of investigations are not really public, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't come out and confirm the existence of the investigation if 
someone didn't know about it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't have that situation here. Gotcha. Obviously, everybody knows about these allegations. There's an incredibly detailed public record already. Mm-hmm. So there's none of those traditional kind of privacy concerns about talking about people that are not charged, you know, uh, none of those really apply here. Um, So I do think this is a a different situation from most cases. And if Garland actually is investigating, uh, whether it's the obstruction charges or or, uh, the uh, Trump's attempt to steal the 2020 election, as I describe it, would would you expect that we would see more evidence of that by now? Or are you seeing uh, your own evidence of some of that? I'm seeing evidence of the 2016 of the January 6th investigation. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think there are plenty of signs that that is that he's doing exactly what he said in that speech about January 6th. That we're starting at the ground level, mm-hmm. you know, working their way up, getting people to cooperate. I mean, you saw he made that speech, and then within a week we had the seditious conspiracy indictment. You mm-hmm. know, for months people were saying, "How come no one's charged with sedition?" You know, mm-hmm. why is it all just these misdemeanors? And then, boom, that indictment comes out. Nobody knew that was coming before it happened. Right, uh-huh. and there are things going on in this investigation that we don't know about yet. And like Garland said, they'll speak through their actions. But we do get little trickles of information about, you know, people who plead guilty who have been asked by prosecutors about possible conspiracies with people higher up in the Trump organization, mm-hmm. and you know, Rudy Giuliani's cell phones being searched, and mm-hmm. you know, the the Proud Boys or Oath Keepers guarding Roger Stone, you know, being pressed for information about him. So there, are, I think, there are a lot of signs that. That investigation is really active, and I believe Garland, when he says they'll take it wherever it leads. But it really is very distinct from these obstruction allegations of events that took place five years ago. Right. You know, that's kind of a standalone matter to me. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think, again, I understand the focus on January 6th, but given the amount of time and effort that went into that Mueller investigation, I think there should be some closure on that. And how, how long it will it be before we run through all of uh, whatever it was, 10, 11, 12 of those obstruction charges before the uh, statute has told on, on, on all of those? Oh, a couple of years. So, so yeah, there's still a couple of years that yeah. he could take action on this. If, if he was going to take action on any of these things, uh, very quickly here, whether it's uh, the, 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 uh, maybe the easier case, I don't know, uh, in one sense, the January 6th business, uh, how long might such an investigation take before there actually would be an indictment in a case like that, like January 6th, for example? It's January been a year. Uh, yeah. You know, do do these things take two, three, four years? And the reason I'm asking is because of the, you know, the next question, really. What, you know, happens, what comes of such a probe if he is carrying it out and if Trump, for example, declares tomorrow that he's a candidate for 2024? Sure. Yeah, no, the, the closer it gets to the next presidential election, of course, the more complicated it gets if Trump is going to be a candidate, mm-hmm. right, as, as, you're, as you're identifying. Um, but the truth is, to do this kind of investigation properly is going to take a long time. Um, I mean, if you think back to other major investigations, you know, Enron or Watergate, or I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I mean they, it's two, three, four years sometimes bef- between time the investigation begins and the final top-level people are yeah. charged. So, And this is, I think, probably the largest single investigation DOJ has ever done. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you listen to the stats that Garland went through during his speech, yep. the, the number of defendants and the number of subpoenas and the, the terabytes of data they've got to sort through, I mean, it's just a massive uh, undertaking. So, 
yeah, it's going to take time, <laughs> and I don't think we want them to rush it. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we if don't. If it's going to be done, you've got to do it properly, right? Well, yeah. Right, there's a tension there. Yeah. No, exactly. And I mean, but you talk about, you know, this, the special circumstances in the case with, with Mueller and, and so forth. I think you've got the special circumstances in a case where this guy could declare his presidency or his intention to run for uh, president, mm-hmm. you know, tomorrow. And I don't know how, you know, if, he, if, if Garland waits another six months or until after the midterms and, uh, you know, Trump announces I'm running for 2024, I don't know how Garland can possibly bring indictments at that point. And uh, yeah, it would be an unprecedented problem for sure. And, you know, Trump might announce just for that reason. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, just, um, just to try to head that off. You know, I mean, strictly speaking, you know, the DOJ has this, kind of, it's not even written down, it's kind of an informal policy about not acting within 60 or 90 days right. of an election. You know, you don't want to try to influence right. an election. So strictly speaking, that that would mean he wouldn't be barred from indicting a candidate Trump, uh, you know, a year before the presidential election. <laughs> or, and he could just keep, if you just followed that policy, just keep his head down, go where the law and facts take him, and if there's an indictment, so be it. Uh, and you kind of put the political calendar out of your mind. Yeah. But when you talk about the president... <laughs> And uh-huh. especially a former president, I think, yeah. like you're recognizing, practically speaking, that that gets really hairy. Uh, that's a ni- <laughs> that's a nice way to put it. Uh, yeah. yeah, I think it would be an absolute nightmare. And so, to that respect, I, I, it would be nice. I think if if Garland at least indicated that he was in uh, he was doing this, so that he was looking at that, you know, in some fashion, so that it doesn't appear to be ah, now that he's announced he's running for president, now Joe Biden's uh, attorney general is going after him. Uh, I, no, that's right. That's, that's really that's really a, a mess. It's um, a mess. It's... I mean, that's a, but that's another reason the state prosecutions are actually really worth watching as well. Because it, even though Trump will still attack them as being handled by partisan Democrats, at least they're not his direct political opponents. You know, the prosecutions at the state level don't have quite that same baggage about right. this is Biden's DOJ trying to take me out because they know I'm going to beat him in 2024. Yep. So, you know, the state prosecutions are really, the Georgia and New York are really an important thing to keep an eye on. They are indeed. We will be keeping our eye on all of the above. Uh, Randall D. Eliason is law professor at um, George Washington University Law School in D.C., of course, a former assistant U.S. attorney for the District of Columbia, where he served as chief of the Public Corruption and Government Fraud Section. You can also find, um, well, his his latest uh, column at Washington Post is Yes or No, Mueller Report Criminal Charges. Don't let Trump just run out the clock. And, of course, much more on uh, Randall's blog called SidebarsBlog.com. Randall, always great speaking with you, sir. I look forward to the next time. Great. Thanks for having me. You bet. Thank you. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why the uh, the state cases are obviously important, why yes. I've been keeping my eyes on those. Yeah, but the thing that, that, that yeah. really, in my head, set off an alarm bell, that that idea, meaning that since the state prosecutors are not direct political opponents, as uh, Eliason said, that it might actually be sort of a, uh, an incentive for Attorney General Garland to not mm. do anything publicly, to not indict or investigate publicly in order to make it not look like the Department of Justice is going after a political opponent to mm-hmm. sort of preserve the Department let, of Justice. Let the states take care of this. We are depoliticizing the, uh, the Department, Department of, of Justice. Justice. Let the states uh, go after Donald Trump. We're not going to get there. And that's, yeah, I'm afraid of that, too. Yeah. 
That's uh, an incentive in, in a way. And that's Perverse insane. Perverse incentive, I guess. That's insane because that's how uh, the rule of law ends. Uh, you know, oh, well, we can't go against him because it will be seen as a political thing. And we're institutionalists and we want need to protect the DOJ at all costs. And that cost is quite huge, actually. Yeah, I don't think that protects the DOJ at all. I think that, you know, maybe it helps politically, but I think it does nothing for the cause of justice itself. Well, let's hope that that's not where they're going. <laughs> we'll see. All right. Uh, let's take a quick break here. We'll come back with uh, one more story uh, related to this. We've we've got um, you heard David K. Johnson saying that he believes Trump will be indicted. Yep. You got uh, Randall Eliason saying it doesn't look good. It looks like at least Mazars is uh, now uh, working against Donald Trump. One more comment on all of this after the break from. Well, you'll find out. That's straight <laughs> ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com slash donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com on uh, CNN on Tuesday. Former Trump aide Kelly Ann Conway's husband, George Conway, remember him? Longtime Republican attorney and, and uh, legal expert. It was critical, for example, during the impeachment of Bill Clinton. Uh, he has been, of course, very critical of Donald Trump over the years, even while his wife was Trump's senior political advisor and former yeah. campaign manager. That was wild. Somehow they're still married, yeah. I guess. I don't know. Anyway, uh, Conway was on CNN. He discussed the potential implications of Trump's longtime accounting firm uh, informing the Trump organization last week that it should no longer rely on nearly 10 years worth of financial statements that they had created at Trump's behest and that they would no longer serve as Trump's accountants, citing a conflict of interest, which... Uh, everyone seems to believe uh, means that they are um, uh, testifying cooperating. Against Trump, yeah. yeah, testifying against and cooperating with the prosecutors in New York who are looking at Trump's bank tax and insurance fraud allegations. Anyway, Conway says that Mazar's dumping Donald Trump is worse for him than being impeached two times, as he explains. You tweeted tonight, this is worse for him than getting impeached twice. Why is that? Absolutely. Absolutely, because it goes to his business. I mean, impeachment, the worst thing that can happen to an impeached president is they be, they, they, they're removed from office and they go back to doing what they did in private life. This is his private life. This is what he had to go back to, which is running his own private business. And now his private business, 10 years of financial statements have been pulled by the accountants. And the accountants are basically saying you cannot rely on them, which raises all sorts of potential collateral issues for the Trump organization, which could be, there could be debt covenants that say that, you know, you have to keep providing us on an annual basis, uh, 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 audited financial statements or reliable financial statements that have been looked over by an accountant. And now he can't do that 
They're all gone. All these, all these financial statements are worthless to him. And there's no likelihood, I think it was pointed out earlier in the hour, that he's going to be able to find another accountant to fix this problem. And it's 10 years worth. That's just remarkable. I mean, this is about, this is about as calamitous a thing that could happen to a business that you could imagine, and other than you know, getting indicted or, or going bankrupt. And, and this could lead to going bankrupt. What about getting indicted? Do you think he's in a worse legal situation because of this? Thing? Getting, well, it, 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 of course. Yeah, it, it's highly problematic because now you, are, you have the, the accounting firm saying, although they say, they, they say that they, they didn't find, der, determine whether there were material discrepancies. What they're basically saying there is we have no idea what the right numbers should be and you can't rely on them. And the reason why we, and the fact that they are uh, resigning as his accountants basically means that they're pointing the finger at him. They have a conflict of interest with him, according to the letter, which means, as I interpret it, under these circumstances, they're basically playing on Team AG and Team DA and not on Team Trump anymore. And they are going to be pointing the fingers at the Trump organization and say, well, okay, well, you know, the, the information here, if it's wrong, they gave it to us. And that's not helpful. And particularly, it's unhelpful for the investigation, the part of the investigation that's being conducted by uh, Letitia James, the attorney general. She has the authority to bring a civil case under a New York statute called the Martin Act. And the Martin Act, because it's a civil statute and because of the way it's written, doesn't require the prosecutor to prove um, intent and, and fraudulent intent. And, that, and if these statements are basically, if the accountants are basically concluding that these statements are not relied on, that these contain false statements, basically that case is proven. Wow. So remember when I told you a few weeks ago, hey, stay patient. I know it's annoying. Uh, wait a few more weeks. The Omicron variant will come down. And uh, well, it is now starting to come down. The CDC is looking at changing their masking guidance. I'm telling you the same thing when it comes to Trump. Be patient. Uh, he is not going to escape this. He's not going to escape accountability in any event. Who knows wh where he's going to get it. But it is coming. Just be patient. Um, it's coming for those people who think, oh, he gets away with everything. He has for a while. He won't forever. Okay. We'll see. Take it to the bank. Uh, <laughs> until then, my thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest today, of course, uh, George Washington University Law School's Randall Eliason, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com, all of which is made possible by listeners like you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. We are not supported by corporations and political foundations. We are supported by you. Thank you in advance. You can drop me an email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. I'll see you there. Until we see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Oh, oh, oh.